What is CPR and intubation? How do you bring up code status with patients and families? Do you need to complete a MULS form in its entirety, or are there some sections that are more important than others? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Timeout. Welcome to Medical Timeout, a podcast where we discuss all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chinlin Ching. Rashmi, we have a busy day today. We have a lot to talk about. Um, and in fact, this topic is so meaty and important that we will be breaking it up into two parts. The first part will explore the most form, what is a code status, and the logistics of filling out the form. The second part will dive into some language and wording around talking about attempts at resuscitation. So Rashmi, what does a most mean and what is it? So we've talked a lot over the past few episodes about exploring a patient's values and about coming up with goals of care and plans that make sense to the patient based on values. So ideally, after we finish that goals of care discussion, we should be documenting the outcome of that conversation in the patient's medical record. But it's also useful to have everything summarized in one single document, and that's what the MOLST is. So MOLST stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Each state has its own version of the MOLST. In some states, it's called a POLST for Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, In New York, the MOLST form was actually born, as you mentioned um, in a prior episode, right in Rochester. Um, The first one was developed in 2001, and it's been revised several times since then. Um, And one of the reasons it's a good idea to call it a MOLST instead of a POLST is, is that the most recent revision of the form in 2022 explicitly allowed for nurse practitioners and physician assistants to sign the form as well as physicians as the medical provider. The new revision also changes the order of the form so that decisions about CPR, intubation, and hospitalization are right on the first page, uh, while decisions about other types of treatments we might do are now on the second page. So in other words, what we think of as code status is now front and center. So Chinlin, can you talk a little bit about what code status means? Yes, code status is something we put a lot of weight on in the medical world. It carries with it a lot of emotions and fears and assumptions about its meaning. Um, At its very basic level, it is a statement of the type of treatment um, you would want if you were to die, Um, either from a cardiac arrest or from a respiratory failure. Um, Would it make sense for you to undergo attempts at CPR or cardiopulmonary resuscitation to restart your heart? Would it make sense for you to have a breathing tube uh, placed and connected to a machine to breathe for you? If someone would not want uh, attempts at resuscitation, we call that a DNR for do not resuscitate. If someone would not want a ventilator to breathe for them, we call that a DNI for do not intubate. I think of um, DNR, DNI as basically natural death. Um, when my when someone says, oh, you know, doc, when my time comes, um, I just want to be made comfortable and allow for a natural death. I don't want artificial life support. Just let me go. That's a DNR, DNI. Um, when someone feels that both measures make sense to attempt for them, they want attempts at resuscitation, they want to go on a breathing machine, then we call it being a full code. Um, in the American medical system, the default is to be a full code. Unless you tell us otherwise, we will attempt CPR and put you on a ventilator if necessary. 
you know, and I can hear a lot of people saying, well, of course that's the default. Of course I want those things if they're going to keep me alive. But the thing that's so important is that CPR intubation are not what we see in the movies or on TV. So um, I remember, Chenlin, a few years ago, I went to a conference, um, and as part of one of the presentations, they showed us, like, this Tom Cruise movie. So in the movie, Tom Cruise and his companion are running down the sewer, and, I don't know, something happens to him, and he collapses. Um, I guess he loses his pulse or something, and so she starts doing chest compressions. She gives him mouth-to-mouth breathing. You know, she's going, come on, come on. And then he pops up, his eyes pop open, he like gasps, he coughs a couple of times, and then he gets up and runs down the sewer some more. So that's not how it goes in real life. Um, And it's essential for people to understand not just what CPR and intubation are, but what the aftermath of CPR and intubation can be before people can consider whether these are interventions that are ultimately right for them or, or that are worth it for them, given their goals. Makes sense. So when I talk to patients about CPR, I try to be honest, but I try not to be graphic and scary. So CPR does involve a combination of, of pressing on the patient's chest, of providing electric shocks um, to paddles to try to restart the heart, um, and giving medications through an IV to, to try to restart that, that heart. As part of that resuscitation process, the patient is intubated. Um, a breathing tube is placed through the mouth and into the lungs, And if the patient survives the the attempt at CPR, then they are typically uh, connected to a mechanical ventilator to breathe for them, and they're transferred to the ICU where they might have to undergo additional procedures, where they might be at risk for additional complications. Chinlin, what are some other things that you might say to people when you discuss CPR with them? So I always emphasize the word attempt. This is an attempt at resuscitation, right? We're attempting. Um, There's no guarantees. This isn't the movies. You're not going to jump up like Tom Cruise, although we all love to be Tom Cruise, um, and keep running. But first, I want to take a couple of steps back and actually talk a little bit about the history of CPR, which I think is really fascinating. Um, We're going to geek out a little bit on history. I think it'll give an overview of why code status brings so much weight Um, and anxiety, actually, to providers in in talking about it. So the first successful report of CPR was made um, in medical literature in actually 1960. They called it defeating death. Um, And in 1974, the American Medical Association became the first professional organization to propose that decisions not to resuscitate be formally documented in progress notes and communicated to all attending staff. They said, and I quote, CPR is not indicated in certain situations, such as in cases of terminal irreversible illness where death is not unexpected. So back then, doctors were actually the ones making decisions about attempts at resuscitations, not patients. Um, But then in 1988, New York became the first state to pass a statute governing DNR orders. So under this statute, um, every patient was actually presumed to want and consent for CPR. So it sets CPR apart from every other medical intervention we do, right? Mm -hmm. Everything we do, we need to get consent for. Um, Everything from blood transfusions to um, getting sutures uh, for a cut. But um, CPR now is unique um, in that it routinely administered in the absence of consent. Um, You need to consent 
if you don't want it. Mm -hmm. So um, we have to attempt resuscitation on a patient, even if we feel that it would be harmful or medically futile to do so. And so it's this concept of having to do something, even if we as medical providers feel like it, it is not medically indicated or might harm a patient, that is what causes the moral distress amongst us. Mm -hmm. And that's where the weight of code status and, and CPR really comes from. Um, because you're going to share some statistics with us about how awful we are at attempting resuscitation. I am. I don't typically share statistics unless somebody asks, but you just ask. So here are some statistics with regards to what happens to people after attempts at CPR. So this is according to the American Heart Association. Patients who get CPR outside of the hospital, their survival immediately after that CPR attempt ranges from 3% to 16%. When you move people inside the hospital, or which is to say when people are inside of the hospital when that attempted at CPR is made, then the survival, survival is in the neighborhood of 10 to 20%. Of that, say, 15, 20% of people who survive the attempted at CPR, an even smaller percentage of people live long enough to be discharged from the hospital. And of the people who leave the hospital, a large fraction of them don't go home. They go to another hospital, or they go to a rehab facility, or they go to a skilled nursing facility. So let's be clear about the patient population that we're talking about as palliative care providers. We're not talking about young, healthy patients. We're talking about people who have chronic illnesses or serious illnesses um, that mean that they're sick enough to be admitted to the hospital. So the patients who tend to do better after attempts at CPR are the people who have CPR for that purely cardiac event, for the myocardial infarction, the MI, the heart attack. The people who don't tend to do well are the ones who have underlying illnesses, things like cancer or dementia or Parkinson's disease or renal failure. Because restarting the heart with CPR, if it works, only addresses the heart. It doesn't fix the other conditions that the patient might have, including the ones that led to the cardiac arrest in the first place. Um, and in fact, CPR and the aftermath of CPR can actually preclude treatments for the underlying illnesses. So even after, you know, quote unquote, successful CPR, most patients are incredibly sick and they're at high risk for further complications like infections or kidney failure. They may not be able to maintain adequate nutrition even if they had artificial nutrition through a feeding tube or even if they're getting IV fluids they probably aren't able to work with physical therapy or occupational therapy to improve their conditioning or to get stronger. So it means that these people are probably not good candidates for treatments like chemotherapy or elective surgeries or other things that can be curative or life prolonging. And so that's why it's so important that we consider conversations about CPR or decisions about CPR and intubation in the context of a patient's overall goals for their care. If a patient's goal is to stay alive at all costs, then CPR might make sense. But if the goal is to have as good of a quality of life as possible, you know, maybe being at home, maybe being able to interact with, with one's uh, loved, loved ones, then CPR and intubation might not be appropriate because they can actually move the patient further away from what's important to them rather than closer to what's important to them. So what I'm hearing from you is that we're pretty good at prolonging life. Um, we're not so good at prolonging life that's worth living. 
Um, let's underscore a key point here. A patient's overall values and goals should be the guiding principle in making more specific decisions about the medical care, including decisions about attempts at resuscitation. What makes life worth living? That's the question to start with. If you tell me that you never want to live in a nursing home or ever want to live if you were dependent on others to uh, help you bathe or eat or drive, um, then you know attempts at resuscitation that might bring you back to a debilitated life may not be a, a goal that would be in line with your values. Um, because if you are so sick that you need attempts at CPR, Rashmi, like you said, then the chances of coming back to a meaningful life are pretty much zero. Um, but if someone says, Dr. Chang, I don't care about quality of life, I care about quantity. I'm okay with being hooked onto life support machines in a nursing home as long as my family can come and visit me and they can see me, um, that's enough. Um, then you, know, you have your answer right there. This is a person who would want attempts at all of those things. Um, so, you know, we'll be talking more about how to seek those values out in uh, our second part. Right, and the second part is where we'll take more of a deep dive into language and about how to actually talk about code status. But for now, let's talk a little bit more about that most form and the basics of how to fill it out. Right, we often find that either no one has ever written down what a patient's goals are, um, or that no one has looked to see if it's been written down. This is one of the reasons uh, a MOLST form is useful. It's bright pink, you can't miss it, um, and it summarizes all of their wishes really in one or two pages. It lives in the electronic medical record. It can be scanned in there um, for all healthcare providers to access and see, um, plus the original usually goes home with the patient. They can keep it at home on the refrigerator, as we often say, or they keep it with their other documents, their wills and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, Rashmi, let's talk about how to complete this form, sort of the logistics and the nitty gritty of that. Do you need um, to do it in the room with the patient? Um, does it have to be signed by the patient? No and no. So you actually do not need to be in the same room with the patient, and the patient does not need to sign it. And we'll talk more about the signature part a little later. Um, but honestly, I usually don't complete the most form in the room with the patient. What usually happens is that you know we have a conversation in which we talk about the patient's values and identify what, what their wishes are, um, and then I will ask for permission to complete that most form. Um, I tell the patient that the original will go home with them and that a copy of it will be scanned into the chart, and then I tell them what I plan to check off on the form based on what we talked about during our discussion. And we've talked a lot today about the actual code status, attempts at CPR and intubation, but um, there are other measures listed in it as well on the MOLS form, things like hospitalizations, wishes for feeding tubes, IV fluids, antibiotics, dialysis. There's so many checky boxes. Um, it's actually quite overwhelming for medical providers. I can't imagine what a layperson would think when they look at this form and see all these checky boxes. Um, do you need to check something for every single wish? You don't. Um, you only need to complete the sections of the form that you've addressed. You know, goals of care discussions can be emotional, they can be overwhelming, and you don't need to make a plan for every single situation that might come up. So I, I do tend to talk about code status decisions as early as possible, and that's partly why they're on that first page, because 
you know, things like CPR and intubation, those are decisions that we need to make right now in the moment, right? If, if you have a cardiac arrest or if you have respiratory failure, we don't have time to call your family and say, hey, should we attempt CPR? Should we attempt a breathing tube? Those are things that we need to know right now. Um, so a patient might engage in that discussion about code status and decide that they want to be DNR, DNI. And they might say, well, and I, I don't, I'm pretty sure I don't want a feeding tube either, but they might have no idea how they feel about IV fluids or dialysis or things like that. So it's perfectly okay to leave those sections blank. I mean, the key point here is that you should only fill out the sections of the most um, that are relevant and the ones that you've discussed um, with the patient and family. So in part two, I'm actually going to put my hospice medical director hat on and talk a little bit about these other sections of the MOLST form, like when it would be appropriate to address things like IV fluids and coming back to the hospital and antibiotics. Um, another point, Rashmi, is that it's okay if the patient or the surrogate um, lack, who, if the patient lacks capacity leaning on a surrogate, if they don't sign the form. Um, so it's perfectly fine to do a verbal consent, uh, and a form is valid whether the consent is written or verbal. It's also okay not to have multiple witnesses to have a verbal consent. Um, whoever has had the documented um, the goals of care discussion could be one witness. If there are other people in the room, um, you can list them. Um, the witnesses do not need to sign. Again, you can just write their names. Um, I've certainly been in situations where it's just me and the patient, and I'd imagine if I were a primary care doctor um, in a room with the patient and we have a meaningful discussion, leaving the room to go grab a nurse who's taking care of other patients just to come and have the conversation repeated seems really burdensome. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, it's not necessary, and it's not legally required. Right. So I think you know what's, what's key here is that the verbal consent is equally valid to a signature um, and... and witnesses don't need to sign their names. If they're there, you can just write their names down. And the thing with the verbal consent provision, again, means you don't need to be, you don't even need to, to be physically in the same room as the patient when you have this discussion and complete the most form. It is perfectly fine to say do the most form um, in the context of a telemedicine visit or even a phone call with the patient or the family. Um, you sign the form itself, you check off the box that says verbal consent, you scan that form into the medical record, and then you mail the original form or somehow get that original form to the patient to put in their, in their house or on the refrigerator, wherever they're going to put it. Um, and regardless of how the consent is uh, taken, either written or verbal, the form must be signed by, by a provider. So that is one signature that is required. So um, a licensed medical provider, whether that's a physician, a nurse practitioner, or a physician assistant, uh, must sign the form. It's a medical order. Um, without a provider signature and license number, the MOLS form is not valid. Um, Rashmi, do you ever bring the MOLST form into a room? This is sort of a hotly debated uh, topic amongst providers. Do you physically bring the form in the room? Do you ever use it to guide a discussion? Um, I've honestly never brought a MOLST form into the room. That's a, my confession to make today. Um, because honestly, you could have the most beautiful goals of care discussion with a patient and their family. You could wax poetic about life and death. You could orchestrate the perfect goals of care discussion as we talked about and come to a conclusion um, and and they decide you know right they want a natural death they want to be DNR DNI and then the second you take out this bright pink form and they see all those checky boxes they freeze up and then you get you know what hold on 
I, I need to think about it some more. I need to talk to, to my family some more about it. There's something about seeing these checky boxes and being asked to sign on a dotted line that make people freeze up and make them feel like they're signing their life away almost. It's written in stone. Um, so I always take a verbal consent. I leave the room. I fill out the most form based on what I translated their values into medical interventions to be, and then I bring it back to them. Um, completed. Yeah, same. I also typically complete the form after the fact. Um, and as I think I've mentioned before, I discourage other people, medical trainees, our colleagues, from bringing the form in the room specifically to use it as a checky box guide. Um, you know, a goals of care discussion should be nuanced and rooted in the patient's values, not, not reduced to just a series of, of things that you check off. Now, that being said, there are some patients who appreciate having the visual aid. Um, there are people who do, you know, whether you have the discussion or not, they like to look at the form and they like to consider what their decisions are for a day or two before it's completed. So if that's the case, if the patient wants to see the form, then of course I will go ahead and make it available to them, but it's not my practice to, to bring it in, uh, in, in advance in case we are going to sign it during the discussion. And Chinlin, I'd like to take some time to reiterate some of the points that we uh, discussed when we talked about advanced care planning and surrogate decision makers. So now we've got this MOLST form. It's been completed. Can it be changed? And if it can be changed, then who can change it? So a MOLST form can always be changed, but it can only be changed by the person who actually made the original decisions. So if um, a patient was the original decision maker, then when or if they lose capacity, surrogate decision makers cannot go and change that original MOLS form. Um, if, if a surrogate decision maker was the one who made the original decision, that, that same surrogate decision maker can change their own mind. Um, there are certainly situations that are legitimate where decisions can be changed by surrogate decision makers. For one, you know, if a MOLS form was signed or a verbal consent was taken by a patient um, and their condition has somehow changed and more goals of care discussions have been had and it's revealed that now in this new, new medical situation the patient would have wanted something else, um, then they could change from sort of a, a full code MOLST to a more limited um, MOLST form. Another situation is if a patient changed their, dis their decision about um, attempts at resuscitation and ventilation, but never had time mm -hmm. to go and change that with a medical provider. So a, an example I've given is, let's say, um, you know, a son comes running into the emergency department and his dad is now has lost his capacity. He's on BiPAP um, from a COPD exacerbation. He can't speak for himself anymore. And he had a DNR, DNI MOLS form. And the son runs in and says, you know, a month ago at Thanksgiving, um, my dad and I were talking, and he gave an example of how his sister during COVID was intubated, and she actually recovered and went to rehab, and she's doing well now. My dad told me at that time that he would consider a trial of intubation, but he's never had time to go to his primary care doctor's office to change that. That's a pretty convincing and legitimate story. Mm -hmm. You know, there's backing to it. It's not just the son running into the emergency department saying, no, no, I'm not ready for my dad to die. I want you to do everything mm -hmm. and, and negate what he had originally wanted for himself. Um, it's a very different story that way. So those are the very specific situations where a surrogate decision maker can change decisions that a, a patient originally made. And that's why it's important, um, sorry to interrupt you, to, to ask patients and families what their wishes are 
throughout the course of their disease because um, their condition will continue to change mm-hmm. and their quality of life may change and the way they think about what their end of life might want to look like might change as well. So I want to get your take on this one kind of final example before we wrap up. So there are plenty of patients and families who are totally realistic about the medical situation. They know disease-directed therapy is inappropriate. They know that time is limited. They know that things like CPR and intubation are much more likely to be harmful rather than helpful. But they're still adamant that they want to be full code. You know, this might be for religious reasons or you know, for other reasons where people feel like they just want to know that they exhausted all of the available options. So I'm thinking about um, a man I took care of recently. He was in his 50s, um, you know, actually like our, like our patient from earlier. He um, had metastatic pancreatic cancer. Um, in retrospect, he had about a couple of weeks left to live. And, and at the time, he knew it. He knew his time was really short. But he wanted to stay full code because he said, well, what if I have a heart attack? What if I get into a car accident? How do you respond when when people bring this up? My response would be always go back to the foundation of their values and goals. Um, Sure, he might have a heart attack or he might be in an accident, but it's still within the context of having widely metastatic pancreatic cancer that's not treatable anymore. So, you know, what are his chances of a meaningful recovery and survival, you know, that involves treatment of NMI or, um, or a car accident with metastatic pancreatic cancer back in the background? It's, it's very low. Mm-hmm. Um, so what will his life realistically look like if we were successful in attempting resuscitation? Our ICU colleagues are brilliant. Mm-hmm. They're really great at what they do. Um, so it's not about the chances of him, again, surviving the attempts. It's what does his look, life look like after the attempt? What happens after the ICU? I talk to your patient about whether potentially never going home again or needing to go to a nursing home, or more commonly, we see the rehab to hospital dance, what we call the dance. People are too frail to go home, so they go to rehab, but then they're not strong enough to recover and they get a complication. They come back to the hospital, they go back to rehab, and they bounce back and forth until they never go home again and they die in the hospital. Um, So being a DNR, DNI, I would remind your patient, doesn't mean no treatment. Um, It just means that when you die, you just want a natural death. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do have a story to share with you, Rashmi, about a time when I actually didn't think DNR, DNI was appropriate for a patient, and this is very rare for me, but another sad case, this was a 26-year-old woman. Um, She was diagnosed with um, ovarian cancer when she was 22 years old. She received treatment for it, including um, surgical uh, removal of her one ovary, and she had serial scans afterwards for a couple years and she was felt to really be cured of her cancer and so at the age of 24 she decided to start a family with her husband Um, but during her pregnancy she developed very severe shortness of breath Um, and sadly when they scanned her they found her lungs were filled with fluid surrounded by fluid and she had widely metastatic cancer that was very suspicious of ovarian cancer Mm -hmm. Um, so when our team first met her, her daughter was just one year old. And it was clear to everybody who met her and saw her that um, she was likely going to die very soon. 
we were called to have goals of care discussions with her because she was still full code. Um, and we knew that attempts at resuscitation would be really harmful for her. And I think the nurses caring for her really loved her and, and did not want to harm her. And so it was very morally distressing for them to consider having to do these things to her when, uh, when she died, um, when they knew that it wasn't going to help her. So you're not going to meet anyone who wants to live more than a new mom. Mm -hmm. This woman wants to live. We all want her to live. Um, she went to the ICU several times throughout her hospitalizations. Um, and we would attempt, we would dip our toe into the goals of care and code status conversations, as we would say. And we noticed very quickly that it just wasn't a conversation that they were emotionally capable of having. Mm -hmm. um, and she would reflect to us, she's, I know I'm dying. I know there's no more treatment for me. Um, but my parents love me so much. And my husband loves me so much. And I cannot bear to think about disappointing them. Yeah. by becoming a DNR, DNI. And I was debriefing with our team about this, and, and I was very adamant. I said, we are never walking in that room again and bringing up code status. She deserves to be full code mm -hmm. until she's not anymore. <laughs> but the team would call us every couple of weeks when she was admitted to go get the DNR. Um, and this was the first time in my life that I found myself saying, no, <laughs> no, she is to be full code. And at the end of all of it, she became DNR, DNI on her own terms in her own time, and she died on hospice. Um, and, you know, it's, it, has to, it has to be what makes sense for the patient. It's a, it's a wrenching story, um, and I'm happy that, that in the end we were able to support her wishes and honor her wishes. So let's summarize everything that we've talked about today. So number one, MOLS stands for Medical Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, and in New York, it's a bright pink form on which we can document patients' wishes regarding things like CPR, intubation, and also things like feeding tubes and dialysis and all kinds of things. Um, in the United States, the default is that a person is full code unless they indicate to us otherwise. Second, you do not have to address every single section of the MOLST. You do not have to have a box checked in every single section. You can only fill out what's relevant in the current situation or what you've discussed with the patient in the current situation. Um, next, the MOLST does not have to be signed by the patient. A verbal consent is just fine, and you can actually do this over telemedicine or over the phone or something, but the MOLST has to be signed by a licensed medical provider. And then, as always, a patient's overall goals and values should be the guiding principles in making decisions about code status, about, about resuscitation, about intubation. Um, and we'll talk more about these values-based most conversations in part two of this episode. Thank you for that summary. Um, and we're moving on to our new segment of our podcast in which we want to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion issues. Um, related to our topic at hand. Are there DEI concerns surrounding code status in MOLST? There are. So we've seen for years that Black and Latino patients are less likely to complete a DNR, period. Um, and a recent study published um, in the Journal of the American Geriatric Society actually suggests that in certain populations that gap might be growing. 
Um, and there are a lot of different reasons for this. It might be religious concerns. It might be you know bad past experiences or mistrust with the healthcare system. It might be implicit biases among medical providers that lead to differences in the way that we discuss goals of care and advanced care planning um, with with non-white patients. So of course, a full discussion of these disparities is is beyond the scope of of this episode. Um, but it's as always important for us to recognize that the disparity exists, um, not so that we can get more people to be DNR, but because we need to try to make sure that we're having um, the right kinds of discussions with patients and families to make sure that there are equitable opportunities for good information exchange, not just from the medical team to the patient and family, but also from the patient and family to us. It absolutely is a very important thing to remember. And now let's move on to our pet peeves, um, the things that drive us crazy when it comes to code status and most form. Um, and, you know, for me, it's not taking the two seconds it takes to click on that little button in the medical record to see if there are already documents that exist. Once is one too many times, but we get consulted not infrequently mm -hmm. to have goals of care discussions and code status conversations specifically with patients who are full code in the system um, and we open the chart and two seconds later we find a most form that has been DNR, DNI the entire time they were in the hospital. Um, attempting resuscitation on someone who doesn't want it is a form of battery. It is not a medical uh, mistake to take lightly. It's, it's true, and, and you're right. It, it once is enough, and, and it's, it's happened more than once. I have a couple of, of things that, that bug me. One of them is when patients have a code status of DNI only. So clinically, this is inconsistent because, as we've discussed, any CPR that restores circulation is going to be followed by intubation. It's called cardiopulmonary resuscitation. You can't reperfuse a dying heart without oxygenation coming from the lungs, so it really doesn't make sense. It, it would make sense that for people who would not want intubation to be DNR. Um, and it's incumbent upon us as medical providers to help our patients and families understand this understand why this is the case. My other pet peeve um, is one that's illustrated by the, by the sad story that you told us just a few minutes ago. Um, and it's that sometimes I feel like when a palliative care team gets consulted, it's like the goal of the consult is for us to walk out of that room waving that bright pink form saying, hey, I got the DNR. And you know, usually when we're being asked to do this, DNR makes sense clinically. It's probably the least harmful intervention for the patient. You know, but our charge is not to get the patient to agree with what we think is the most appropriate. Our job is to go in um, and help the patient and family understand the situation so that we can help them come to a thoughtful decision that reflects what their values are. Absolutely. Um, and that's a wrap for today. Um, going forward, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us questions, comments, uh, or topic suggestions by emailing medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. We'd like to thank Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and also for their ongoing commitment to palliative care education. Thank you to Levi Ganji for the music. And a huge thanks to Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. And thank you to you for taking this medical time out with us. 
We hope that you'll join us next time when we'll tackle part two of this episode, in which we'll talk about the importance of our words and our language and about how we actually discuss code status with patients. Have a great couple of weeks.